So John chapter 10, I, I was studying it the last couple weeks, last week, I felt like it was really hard, you know, Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, and you think, whoa, that's, oh, that's great, you know, I mean, it's, it's Psalm 23 in the New Testament style, and it's comforting, and all of these things, this is true, but I'm going to tell you something, from a preacher's standpoint, John chapter 10 is a really hard chapter, and the reason it is, is because it's really uh, the last time Jesus is going to engage those who are in opposition to him. I mean, we'll see it at the cross. They're going to arrest him. Um, That is all coming, but kind of just in the flow of Jesus' ministry, after John chapter 10, he's going to have an encounter with Lazarus and then Mary at Bethany, but really it's going to be with his disciples in the last days of his life before he's arrested. So I say all that to say, this is the last confrontation, and what Jesus does is he does not do what we sometimes do in the church. And that is, sometimes you will hear this appeal, and listen, I get it. I mean, um, you know, I think Paul comes close to appeals like this sometimes, where, you know, Jesus is on his knees begging these people to, you know, please believe in him. You know, that he's out in the cold, knocking on the door of your heart. Won't you let him in? And you think, well, this is the last time with them. And what is the urgency that Jesus feels with these opponents? Because you'll see, Jesus is not against them. They are against him. He wants something more and greater for his opponents. But it is so fascinating to me how Jesus approaches it. And he does it by giving them a study of theology. In fact, I would entitle, you know, chapter 10, and particularly this portion of chapter 10, the theology of Jesus or the doctrine of Jesus. So we have a doctrinal statement at Bethel that says, hey, this is what we believe, and we have these things we've separated out. As, so this is our essentials. We have eight essentials and to you know, be in fellowship here and a member in good standing. It's affirming and believing these eight essentials. It's not understanding all of them, um, you know, particularly things like the Trinity, but it is affirming and believing. Yes, we say that's true. Well, I can count just in the last half of John chapter 10, Jesus very specifically addresses four of those eight essentials. And if you backed all the way up to the beginning of 10, I could make a case that all of the eight essentials Jesus is going to spell out to his opponents. So I want you to see this, um, and I will point them out to you. And um, then I've got a couple of stories to keep you uh, engaged I'll tell you, all right? But um, hang with me because this is a fascinating portion of John's gospel. John chapter 10, I'm beginning in verse 22. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. Okay, so there's a time marker here. Before this, the last couple chapters, we were at the Feast of Booths, and there were all, you know, the, all these things that were going on at the Feast of Booths. It was a biblical festival um, set back in Exodus and Deuteronomy, and you find out all the details there. Well, you get here to 1022, and the Festival of Dedication, or the Feast of Dedication, it's also known as the Festival of Lights. It is not a biblical 
um, uh, a feast. It's not a biblical celebration, not in the sense that we think about it. This goes back to what they're remembering and commemorating at the Feast of Dedication happens in 164 B.C., so 160-something years before Jesus is born into the world. And what it remembers is it remembers that in 164 B.C., the, um, the faithful Jewish people, the Jewish people of God, came in and they overthrew a tyrant who had seized control of Jerusalem and its temple. This tyrant's name was Antiochus Epiphanes, or Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Epiphanes means God manifest. It is, uh, he was a Syrian king. He believed himself to be God. That is why he took on the nomenclature Epiphanes. And what he did was he raided the temple of God, took all of the treasury out of it. He threw all of the um, holy things of God out of the temple. He installed a statue of Zeus. He made the outer courts a working and um, profit-producing brothel. And it even says he, you know, sacrificed a pig on the altar of God, the abomination that causes desolation. He would find Jewish people that had copies of Moses' law. He would have it burnt, and then the Jewish person and their family along with it. He was a hater of God and a hater of God's people. And so, there is this revolt that rose up. And there was a guy named Matthias, and he had four sons. They're from a family um, known as the Hasmoneans. They're very early in their uh, history. And then later they become the Hasmonean dynasty, and there's this whole mess that happens after that. And it's where you get Herod the Great's wife, Miriam. But anyways, Matthias is not a bad man. He's a good man. He's got four good sons, and they're mad about Antiochus making a mockery of God's temple. So they go in, and they are going to start this revolt. Matthias is going to be killed straight away. He's just like, you know, he's, he's William Wise Braveheart. Um, that fuels his son Judas to rise up. They referred to him as Judas Maccabees. Maccabees wasn't his last name. Maccabees means hammer. So it was like his wrestling name, you know? Judas the Hammer. And it was known as the Maccabean Revolt. And they all considered themselves Maccabees. And they overthrow Antiochus. They kick him out. They, they seize, they take control of the temple. They throw all of his stuff out. They cleanse the temple from top to bottom. And then they thank God for restoring to them the place of worship. So then they have this festival for eight days and they light candles and the candles burn for eight days and they remember God delivering them and bringing them back into the place to worship him. It is still celebrated today. It's Hanukkah. It takes place about the middle of December, and um, it's a festival of lights is also what it's known. Here's the irony, though. 
Here's Jesus. He's in the temple. He is the light of the world in the midst of the festival of lights. He is the one. He's walking among the temple. Jesus as God himself walking in their midst, dwelling, tabernacling amongst them, and they miss him. They cannot see him. And so it brings this occasion that the Jews come around Jesus in verse 24. They, they gathered around him. They, they, they circled him. And they said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. Here's what Jesus is saying. Look, what I've done, it has been absolutely plain. You want an answer? What they want him to say is, okay, I am the Christ, you know, explicitly, plainly. What Jesus is saying to them is, listen, it's not words that you're looking for. It's not for me to say I'm the Christ and suddenly you're going to believe. You continue to look for reasons not to believe me. Just look at my works. Look at what it is that I've done. They speak for themselves. He turned the water into wine, which is this creation miracle, something only God can do. What, what kind of works does God do? Well, he creates. He restores. He brings life out of nothing. Jesus says, look, I, I turned the water into wine, something only God can do. I brought sight to the blind, something only God can do. I made a man who was lame his entire life walk. In chapter 11, he's going to raise the dead. And it's so fascinating. They do not doubt that he raised Lazarus from the dead. You know what they say? Hey, we better kill Lazarus again before anybody finds out. What only God can do, these works you know, he commands the wind and the waves and all these signs John's been presenting to demonstrate the authority and the power over creation and sickness and sin and brokenness. And Jesus says, that's my answer. You tell me who I am. See, it's not merely just a claim of, of being. He's not just saying, look, okay, I am God. He is demonstrating who he is. And yet, what Jesus is going to do after he says, look, look at my works, he is now going to present more statements about who he is that are going to lead these Jews to once again pick up stones to stone him. They're going to um, seek to arrest him. They accuse him of blasphemy. In verse 33, they say, we're accusing you of blasphemy because you're making yourself out to be. God. He has made it plain, and their response to him shows that it is clear. Now, think about this for a second. He says, the works I do in my Father's name, the end of 25, bear witness about me. But then he says to 20, and verse 26, he looks at these Jews, and he says this, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. 
So wait a minute. Jesus, what exactly are you saying about these Jews that don't believe? And I'm going to tell you what he's saying. He said, okay, I'm going to tell you why you don't believe. You are not my sheep. You look at verse 29. Okay, well, how do you become a sheep? Verse 29, the Father gives them to the Son to be a sheep, which is the same way of saying John 6, 44. No one comes to the Son unless the Father draws him. In John chapter 12, I bring salvation to those whom the Father appointed. And then you start to get really uncomfortable in John's gospel. You say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believed in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's John. And that's true. And at the same time, Jesus says to him, it's not this. It's not, you're not my sheep because you don't believe. You don't believe because you're not my sheep. Which introduces in a systematic theology, if you were to go to pick up a systematic theology and you were to go to the back index and you were to look through the verses and you went to John, you would find John chapter 10 appear in several places throughout the systematic theology. And one of them would be under the heading of of the doctrine of divine election. And you say, well, I don't don't like election. And I I don't want to believe in it. And I said, well, that's great. You just have to throw out a whole bunch of the Bible to do that. Now, what you believe about election, you and I might differ a little bit. I'm going to tell you what I believe John uh, is, re- is recording Jesus' confrontation with these um, uh, Jewish people that have said they don't believe in him. The reason you don't believe is not because you haven't been convinced. It's because you're not my sheep. Christ's sheep, they know him, but the knowledge of Christ, listen, your knowledge of who Jesus is, you you aren't born with that. There's no natural possession of that by anybody. Faith is a gift from God by his grace. And it turns out in John's gospel where the whole purpose is writing so that you will read it, you would hear and see Jesus, and that you would believe John isn't sheepish at all about presenting the reality that you are only saved by God's grace through faith. Your eyes are only opened If you hear the call of the light, here's some implications. Let me break this down and then I'm going to move on. I got several things to say, so I won't, this discomfort won't last very long and then we'll move to another discomfort. So God's called us. That's what he says. My sheep hear my voice. I've called, I call to them. Um, um, I know them. They follow me. God is at work in us before we are aware of it. The way you are saved is not, does not start with you. The way you are saved starts with God's previous work in you. 
It's unconditional. It's not based on our um, morality or our intellect or our goodness or what we brought to the thing. We don't like, you know, God looked down and we stand out amongst the rest. And so he calls, you know, I mean, it's nothing. It is absolutely unconditional. We are dead spiritually. We are not lovers of God. We can't believe on our own. We don't want to believe on our own. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, but you, you were dead in your sins and trespasses. And because of sin, we are dead. And we don't have the desire or the ability to pursue God. We need his effectual grace to pursue us. He acts First, you know the verse. We love God. It is not that we loved God first, but that he loved us first. But listen, God doesn't drag sinners into his kingdom against their will, kicking and screaming. That's not how it works. Some are dragged, and and they they didn't want to come, and then some that wanted to come, they don't get to come. That's not how the Bible presents it. The unwilling... Do not enter the kingdom of God. Only the willing do. But it is God's sovereignty as he moves by his spirit in sinners' hearts that make those who are formerly unwilling to willingly come to Christ. See, here's here's how it goes. It's the love of God that is wooing us You know, Jesus is the bridegroom and he's preparing uh, the bride and it is the will of God that draws us. John 6, 44, no one comes to the Son unless the Father draws him. It is the desire of God pursuing us. God shows his love in Romans 5. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It is the gift of God that frees us. So we can respond. It is the activity of God that empowers us. For while we were still weak, Paul writes, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. C.S. Lewis, the Chronicles of Narnia, the silver chair at the very end. You know, the kids are, uh, the, the, the children who are growing up now say to the you know, lion, we, we came to you and he said, listen, you would not have called to me unless I had been calling to you. Now listen, here's what this means. I want you to hear this. God desires a relationship with us more than we want a relationship with God. Do you realize that? That's the starting place. God desires a relationship with you more than you want a relationship with him. And that relationship is a relationship based on the loving initiative of God who binds himself to us. And God takes the initiative. That's grace. He is seeking us. We are not seeking But to be predestined or elected in and of itself does not save you. 
We find in Romans that those who um, have been called will be justified. We know that you will, but listen, you've still got to hear the gospel. You've still got to believe that Jesus is your Savior. You still have to know about yourself. You need a Savior. Election doesn't save you. But we know that what God does is he'll call. He'll call those that are his own to his son. They will hear him and be known by him and follow him. Now, Jesus goes on to say to him, look in verse 28. He's going to turn the page in the theology, tell them something else. I give them eternal life. Not just life, eternal life. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. The Father who's given them to me is greater than all. And no one's able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Here is the doctrine of divine preservation. They're mine. They're mine. They'll have eternal life. They'll never perish. And no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. And by the way, not just my hand, but the Father's hand. Because we, we are the same hands. I'll explain that in a second. We're his. Listen, if you're a believer, you cannot lose by the works of the flesh what you cannot gain by the works of the flesh. You are saved by God. And what he's saying is that they are forever safe in the grip of Jesus. It is, it is what we would call um, the, the doctrine of eternal um, divine preservation of the believer. Sometimes you might hear it as the perseverance of the saints. I'll go with Spurgeon here. He says, it's not so much the perseverance of the saints that's prominent as it is the preservation of the saints by God. God preserves you. Jesus saves who the Father gives. There's this unity in purpose, the will of the Son with the Father. And it's not just the hands of Jesus you can't be snatched out of, but also the hands of the Father you can't be snatched out of. And you find down in Ephesians chapter 1 and many other places that the Holy Spirit is involved as well. He has sealed you. He is your guarantee. And so what you realize is the entire trinity is engaged in the preservation of the believer Ecclesiastes said a cord of three is not easily broken. There's an old saint, and he tells a story about a new convert, a new believer. And he's in great distress, and so he comes to see him, and he says, no, no matter how much I pray, no matter how hard I try, I simply cannot seem to be faithful to my Lord, and I think I'm losing my salvation. Anybody ever felt that way? So this one saint says to him, he says, okay, do you, do you see this dog here? He says, this is my dog. And this dog is house trained and he never makes a mess and he is obedient. He is a pure delight to me. And he says, do you see over there in the kitchen? 
that, that's my son, my baby son. And he makes a mess, and he throws his food around, and he fouls his clothes. He is a total, complete nightmare. But do you know who's going to inherit my kingdom? Not my dog. My son. You are the heir of Jesus Christ because he died for you. We're Christ's heirs, not through our perfection or our obedience or any other thing. It is only by the grace of God. So here's the summary of these two things. The religious leaders, they refused to hear the word of God in flesh because they had rejected God's word long ago. Jesus said that to them. Their rejection of Jesus is nothing more than the continuation of their rejection of God. Believers, however, hear the voice and find themselves eternally safe in the care of the good shepherd who lays his life down for them and, and wields his divine power to keep them secure. And belief, listen, belief authenticates, um, is the authenticating response of the believer. And it's belief in what the Savior does, not what the saved does. It is the faithfulness of Jesus that seals the believer's salvation, not the faithfulness of the believer. Your faith is imperfect and weak, but the object of your faith will never let you go. Those who believe in Christ will never be lost. And you know what? The Jews hated this. They pick up stones in verse 31, and then Jesus answers them. Now listen, Jesus is a, is a cool cat, okay? He's standing there, and these angry men who have surrounded him in a circle now pick up stones. And Mark Kirkendall asked the question this week. He's like, where did the stones come from? And it's, like, it's a good question. They probably brought them. So now they pick up their stones, and Jesus goes, whoo, answers them. I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these are you going to stone me? Was it the changing the water into wine? The healing the blind man? Maybe it was when I calmed the raging See, maybe it's that one. And then they said to him, the Jews in verse 33 answered him, it is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. To which the reader says, they finally get it. The word who was with God and was God, became flesh and dwelt among us. So here's what Jesus says to them. What would you do? Surrounded by a bunch of angry men holding rocks. Like, oh, 
you know, we should table this. We should put a pen in it and pick it up later. Jesus does the most unbelievable thing. It is, this is, Jesus is going to take a passage of Scripture and exegete it. This is what he says. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, It is not in, uh, is it not written in your law? I said, you are God's. And if he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated or sanctified and sent into the world, you're blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? And so at first blush you go, that is not any more clear to me. Until... You go back to Psalm 82, which if you have a footnote, that's where it tells you that this comes from. And so what Jesus does is he says, oh yeah? Well, let me answer you this way. Let me go to your law. And in fact, I'll go to an obscure passage buried deep in the Old Testament, in the Psalms, written by Asaph, who we know nothing about. And let me tell you what it is that God said through Asaph. Not only are we going to hear Jesus defend that he is the Son of God, we're also going to see his view, his doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture. Look at what it says. I'm just going to read it to you, and then I'll tell you the context it comes in. It says, God, this is Psalm 82, God's taken his place in the divine council. And in the midst of the gods, little g, he holds judgment. God's taken his place above all, and he looks at these little g gods who he has appointed as judges and leaders over the people. And the reason that they're called little g gods is because they have the right and the authority by God to judge and to, and to grant life and to punish with death and to do all of these things, to speak for God in human matters. So he calls them little g gods. He says, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. And then he says, but they have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness and all the foundations of the earth are shaken. Well, Jesus pulls a psalm out of the middle of one of the probably forgotten places of the Old Testament. And says, by the way, let me just say this to you Jewish leaders, little g gods, who stand in judgment under God because you have forgotten God. I'll also tell you this is one that, you know, Psalm 82, it applies today. 
Those we find from, from Romans chapter 13, Paul says, those that are in, in positions of authority over us, that rule in the government and, and, and as judges and people that make decisions, they have this, um, uh, they're called the servants of God, ministers of God. The problem here was the, they had been put in this place and they had forgotten God. They had thought of themselves as their own, um, the, the, the end of themselves. And, and so they, they began to give favors to the wicked. They began to do things that, that benefited themselves. And listen, that's what happens. And when a society does that and the judges and the elected officials lose sight of who's on the real throne, you know what it says? earth trembles. And so in verse 6, he says, I said, you are gods, son of the most high, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. And then the psalmist says, arise, O God, the judge of the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. What Jesus does is he pulls that out and he's basically, he's saying this. Listen, okay. Step one, inspiration. To whom the word of God came. Divine authorship, God's word through a man written and preserved. It is the word of God. Divine inspiration down to not just concepts, not just, you know, it generally means this, but you can't, you know, you can't take all the words literally. No. Divine inspiration fully to the words. Jesus says, Scripture cannot be broken. And he's arguing the point of a little g plural God's to that word. And he says, look, you've called, if, if the scripture, if God can say through a man, inspired through a man, fully and completely perfect down to the word, and he can call these human judges gods because of what he has appointed them to do. Now he's going to argue from the lesser to the greater. Why is it blasphemous for me who has been consecrated, sanctified, sent from eternity past into history, not be called the Son of God? And when you say Son of God, this is Jesus is talking here about his nature, not his origin, but his, his very nature. He's not a politician, you know, a son by decree. He is not merely a Jew who are called the sons of God by God's choice as a nation. He's not an angel who are referred to as the sons of God by creation. He's not even a Christian who are sons of God by redemption. He is the only begotten son and his nature is the nature of the father himself. Because he is one with the Father. In other words, Jesus is saying, I make the rightful claim of sonship 
because God is my Father. And there is a oneness in our being. And if you need any more evidence, look at what I've done. I am God here. Well, verse 37, look at what he says. I am not doing, uh, if I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Augustine, the great fourth century saint. He was walking along the shore of uh, the ocean. And he was perplexing about and meditating on and trying to work out and get his mind around this idea of the Trinity, that God is one and God is three, but he's one. And he sees this little guy, you know, this little kid on the side and he's got a seashell. And the kid keeps running to the ocean and filling the seashell and he's coming back and he looks at the kid and says, what are you doing? Taking the water out of there and he's putting it in a hole in the sand and the boy says, oh, I'm trying to put the ocean in this hole. And Augustine said, oh yeah, that's what I'm doing. And then he says, the Trinity is mysterious and dangerous. The mind of man cannot fully understand the mystery of the Trinity. He who's tried to understand the mystery fully will lose his mind. But he who would deny the Trinity will lose his soul. The definition is that God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and each person is fully God, and there is one here are some of the errors. They sort of highlight what we're talking about. If you say, well, there's, there's really only one God with one person, that's not Trinitarianism. That's Unitarianism. If you say, well, there are actually three gods, and they just get along really well, well, that's polytheism. If you say, like Arius did in the third century, well, God... Uh, God the Father. Now, that, now that's the real God. And then, and then the Son and the Spirit, they're derivatives. They're, they're overflows of the real God. Well, that's subordinationism. Arius would say, well, Jesus was divine in a way. He was holy in a way. He was sent to earth uh, for salvation of mankind in a way. But he's not equal to the Father He was derived from the Father for a purpose. To say that makes you a heretic. Or to say this, there is one God, or one person, one God, and he puts on different hats at different times. And so sometimes he's the Father, and sometimes he's the Son, and sometimes he's the Holy Spirit. Well, you're a modalist. And modalism is the, is the most common mistake we make. So I'll just save you from it, okay? 
it's where we get all of our very best analogies for the Trinity that are absolutely terribly, fatally wrong, all right? So here's one of them. The Trinity's like ice, water, and steam. You know, it's, it takes three different forms. No, it's not like that. Or you might hear the one, it was like an egg. You know, there's a shell and the yolk and the, and the white. Perfectly wrong. In fact, here's a safe bet. If you come up with an analogy of the Trinity, it's heretical. Because there is no analogy. There's one God and three persons. The all of the church has always said throughout the centuries that this is true. Without this, your understanding of everything else goes wrong. See, the temptation is, is to hear this and go, well, I just, it's just boring theology. And I'd say, no, it's not. And I want to argue why it's not. See, the fact that God is one and that God is three, who is one, means that God has forever been in an eternal community and relationship of eternal and perfect love. But if God is just one who wears different hats or one who something else was derived from him, then what you have is you have a single um, God, a single person existing for eternity outside of relationship, which means this is a God that doesn't love. He creates not to be lonely or he creates to be served or, or he creates out of his own needs. And, and we know, listen, the Trinity, the triune God has no needs. He does not create us because he needs us. And you cannot know what it means that God is not only the creator and not only the judge, but that he's a loving father, the eternal father of the eternal son. And so when you come to him, believer, you're coming not just to the one that created you and not just the one who is all powerful and mighty as a judge, but one who has been a loving father for eternity. And when you come in Jesus' name, in Christ, you come to him as father who for eternity has been a perfect, loving father. I don't know what your baggage is about father. I don't know what mine is. But he's perfect. He might be a ruler. He might be a protector. He might even offer forgiveness. But without the ability to offer a closeness and an intimacy. We wouldn't know him like he's meant to be known by us. You're not saved to be a slave, but to be a son and a daughter. That's why Jesus will say in John 17, you love them even as you loved me. And it would have no meaning if we did not embrace the Trinity.
Verse 39, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. And notice this in 40 through 42, and I just quickly comment on it. He went away across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said this. Notice, John did no signs, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. I think John's doing is he's showing us a key to faith, this sort of soil that faith flourishes in and, and springs up in. And um, John's message was, was embraced and it was respected and it was heard. And where John's message, one of humility, One where John says, the spotlight's not on me. It's not about me. I must become less so he can become more. One where it's utterly unpretentious and it's not after fame and the spotlight's on Jesus. And then when that's heard and that's embraced, you go, yeah, I want to see more of him. That's the mindset of faith. That's the mindset that embraces Jesus. And it is not the mindset that was in Jerusalem. The Jewish leaders rejected John, they will re and they reject Jesus. I'll end with this. Um, Augustus H. Strong, well-known Baptist preacher and theologian and scholar is the one I always worry about that my name is too close to his at the, you know, the Bama seat. You know, he'll call strong and strong will come up. And, I mean, he did all, I mean, he created a concordance. He wrote a theology. He preached dozens and dozens. He, it was amazing what he did in his lifetime. And he had difficult family life. He had a lot of children die and he'll be rewarded and everybody will scream and shout and, and then it'll be straighter and then he'll say strong stay up here for a second and then he'll say you know took strong a lifetime to do that concordance and you have a bible software program that'll do it in four seconds so what'd you do with the rest of your life you're like nah, I watch Netflix I watch more Netflix than him Thank goodness it won't be dependent upon what I've done or haven't done. Strong gives this illustration. He said, I heard that during the Civil War, a swaggering, drunken, blaspheming officer insulted and almost drove from the dock at Alexandria a plain, unoffending man in citizen's clothes. You can just see it, right? And then he heard that that officer turned pale when the plain, unoffending man dressed in citizen's clothes demanded his sword, put him under arrest after identifying himself as General Ulysses S. Grant. And with that, the officer fell at his knees and begged for mercy from the general. I did not know it was you. I'd say we have an opportunity today. 
And you can abuse Jesus. You can offend him. You can pay no attention. You can walk out of here and forget all of this stuff. And you can think, you know what? I'll be just fine without this. I've lived this many years without it. I don't need it. It is for weak people, all of that stuff. And you know, you, you'll get in your car and you'll drive and your life will just go on and you'll think it's of no consequence until, until this. There's a day and you're going to breathe your last here and you're next there. And you'll find yourself at the end of the days standing before the one you rejected and insulted and said, you know what, I, I don't need you. And you'll hear the eternal judge of the universe whom you abused and rejected you will hear the one who said, I was the Lamb of God that came to take away the sin of the world. And I am the Lion of Judah, the rightful king. May God help us to respond to him. If you're here this morning, you've never believed in Jesus, let me tell you, he offered his life for years. He died a death for you as the God-man. It was sufficient for sinners. It was sufficient for you. It was sufficient for all your sins. And may God work in your heart that by the grace of God you would come to him this morning by faith, believing in him, and be saved. So if you would, would you bow with me? Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would do what only you can do. And that you would take your word, your inspired word,